podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. I want to start with something that I don't think you'll remember, but it was a really interesting moment for me. And now I know a lot more about you having listened to the first, you know, four or five episodes of your podcast. I've been dying to ask you about this. The 2010-11 Ashes at the Wacker when you went through England, right? Afterwards, there was a press conference and you and Ricky had to go up after the game together. And for 20 minutes, they asked Ricky questions and you just sat there not being asked any questions. There's a microphone on the desk that kept falling down and you spent the whole podcast trying to fix this microphone until eventually, I think Ricky turned to you and said, can you stop doing that? <laughs> right now at the time I cut that into a super cut, put it up on YouTube. Everyone loved it. Watching you try and put this microphone together. I also felt yep. very sorry for you because clearly <laughs> the microphone was broken and you did everything you could to fix it. Yeah. Having now listened to you and talking about, you know, the different mental health things, is that something that is quite common that you can't let something small like that go? Because there's another story I remember as well. I think it might have been from that same series where there was a ball stuck in the Adelaide Oval nets when you were arrested from that game. And like eventually Troy Cooley had to come over and get you out of the nets because you'd spent about 25 minutes throwing a ball up, trying to knock this <laughs> other ball out of the nets. And so... It feels like for me that you got very fixated on very small things and that sort of completely took over your personality. Is that something that you've learned more about yourself as you've got older? Yeah, I think you're spot on. And thanks for reminding me about those things. Um, it sort of goes back <laughs> and reminds me that the little finger tap that I do or little patterns I do on the remote control at home on the TV. And that's when Jess actually said to me, I think something's going on with you. Like you, you keep doing this tapping like I don't know what it is, your legs tapping away, but you're, you're playing on the remote control and you're doing something. I said, yeah, I'm just doing patterns. Like my, I feel like I need to be moving uh, little joints in my body. And, and I think when that mic, I do vaguely remember that now. And I think it was sort of, I don't know if it was irritating me, but I just felt like I needed to fix it up every time and try and figure out a way to, to keep it standing up. And I think that was just, yeah, part of that ADHD that was was coming out of me. And yeah, look, I, I look back and I, I don't think anything bad of it. I think it was just part of me at the time and, and still is now. I heard all this, obviously, about the ADHD on the new show. So the Mitch Johnson podcast starts next week. This is the, the introduction episode, as it is, so we can get your feed starting and everything else. I feel like listening to you talk that while you enjoyed doing your book, of course, that yeah. was kind of a one-off thing. I feel like you're someone who probably needs to talk about what's going on in your life. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I was actually having this conversation just recently with my wife and I think a few friends as well and just saying that I've always let things just bottle up inside and I feel like I've done that to protect myself, especially in the position that I was in playing for Australia, you're in the public eye. I didn't want people to know me probably to that point like that personally and it wasn't that I, I think it was more, like I said, just protection more than anything. I didn't even think about consequences if I came out and said I'm dealing with ADHD or depression, which I didn't even know fully at the time. There was like inkling of it like with certain things like we are talking about before. But yeah, I, I think now I feel like I have so much information and doing that book was really nice and cathartic at the time, but I still like left a lot of stuff out. Because at that time, I wasn't talking about my depression or ADHD, which was a big part of my life and big part of my career. So now that I have more understanding, I'm very open 
I think this is why I wanted to do the podcast was to be able to get it out there, talk about it because there are a lot of people that are in similar situations and and I just want to try and get my story out there and, and hopefully that helps other people be able to talk about it or, or deal it with it in their own way. Yeah, I was thinking back because I remember the first part of your career, I think the general conception was, and you weren't that open. We didn't know that much about you other than, you know, you bowled 90 mile an hour left arm seam, right? Yeah. But I think the first part of your career, I think there was this misconception that you weren't very bright and that like you were just this guy who was a natural athlete and someone threw the ball at you and you would come in. And I remember really vividly, and I must have written this note down in my notebook like 150 times watching you play. Yeah. Why does he continue to tinker with his bowling action as he's walking back to his mark? Which is not something you really, you don't see Ryan Harris do that, right? Like, you know, someone who knows what they're doing. And we thought, this guy, he's out of his depth. It was kind of the opposite though, wasn't it? It was like there was too much going on with you at times and you were almost constantly tinkering to get that sort of perfection. And it wasn't really that there wasn't anything going on, that in your brain, everything was going on. I think you're probably right. Like I, I, I wouldn't say I'm the brightest, but definitely when it came- <laughs> I never said that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think um, I had so much going on in my mind. I changed my actions so many times with when I had mm. four stress fractures. So I was a very late starter in cricket. So for me, growing up, I was playing tennis and that was my game. Cricket came along, worked through my action a few times. And then when it came to games, I was just overthinking it all and, and trying to keep thinking about technique all the time. And just I'm that perfectionist. On the inside, I wanted to do everything perfectly. And that was part of it. I, I remember that so clearly. I'd be like walking back going, I've got to get my arm into this position. My front arm's got to be up high. I've got to run in with high knees. So I'm like 100 miles an hour in my head. And that was definitely something that frustrated me a lot. And I didn't know or understand why I was sort of thinking that way. I think also maybe a little part of it was because of, like I said, had those injuries and that was just sort of bred into me um, at an early, early age and early part of my career. I think I was definitely out of my depth early on. Um, I, I didn't have the belief. I was definitely felt like I was behind the eight ball when it came to being one of the best bowlers in the team. So there was definitely times of that as well. But yeah, the overthinking part is something that I, I definitely have become better with now. And the second part of my career was something that I worked on a little bit and just having more belief in myself and backing my skills. My action was going to be my action. I had to accept that and then just go out there and keep a clear head by, actually, I had a song in my head, which was the Frozen song, uh, Let It Go, which was a big part of me not overthinking because I used that to block everything else out. And that was the crowds as well. That was the all the abuse that you get at times or the the feedback that you get at times that you try to, again, overthink. So all that stuff is stuff that I learned uh, how to deal with and and now they're my challenges in in my everyday life as well. So, Yeah, I mean, the feedback thing is really interesting because I think as an Australian cricket writer, so my career basically, I started really, you know, at a similar point that you did as a cricket writer. And so you became one of the obsessions that anyone, especially as an Australian cricket writer, you didn't have a choice. You were there all the time. It felt like you were either the hero or the villain. There was never any middle ground. Like if you look at Peter Siddle's career, Peter Siddle had a really good career, but there were just times when Peter Siddle was there and yeah. or Ben Hilfenhouse. They were just bowling. They were doing well. Yeah. You were either the guy that was overhyped or the guy that was the problem. And yeah. if that must have, you know, for someone who's trying to work out who he is as a person, for someone who's maybe not quite feeling as comfortable in his cricket as he should, 
it's really hard to be told you're the hero one day and then a week later be told you're the reason your team's lost. It was almost as up and down as your bowling could be, right? If you yeah. bowl good, everyone says you're great. And if you bowl bad, oh, why is he in the team? Yeah, you're spot on. I mean, I used to look at those guys, like you said, Hilfenhaus and, and Siddle and go, I was like amazed at how consistent they were. But I was just a different type of bowler altogether. And I didn't realize that at first. It took me a little while and I had to go through all the, the ups and downs, like you said. And I think one conversation I had with Glenn McGrath was about bowling performances and trying to drag them closer together. So not having too many big spikes and too many low spikes. He wanted You sort of try and get them banded together. So my goal when I was playing cricket was to get four wickets a test match as an average. And I think that sort of helped me in a lot of ways. But I think the, the type of bowler that I was, was I was the guy that was erratic. I didn't have the same consistency as some of those other guys. But once I realized all those things that I could bowl fast, I, could, I was a left arm, I could swing it, I could go for runs, I could happily accept to go for runs. Once I actually accepted that, that made a big difference because I was such an attacking player and such an aggressive bowler. This is how funny it is. I, we used to have conversations as a bowling group and it was like, first, you know, we've got to get the ball up there, pitch it up full, get it full as possible. If we get driven, we get driven. And my theory was, that doesn't get me rhythm. Like in the back of my head, I was thinking if I bowl short and get aggressive early on, that gets me into the game. I feel like much better. So I don't think I ever spoke to anyone about that and I just started doing it. And then I'd find my length that way because it used to be said that it's quite hard to find your good length when you're bowling short at the start. But I don't know. I felt like it was a lot easier for me because of the style of bowler that I was. I was never that full length bowler. I'd try to sometimes early on if it was swinging, um, but and that was another issue actually, swinging the ball. I mean, I got praise for swinging the ball at certain times, but I wasn't a swing bowler either. Just on occasions, it would come out and it would swing, so then I'd have to work with it. So, yeah, I, I look back and think about all that stuff now, and it is a roller coaster ride, and it's something that I'm quite proud of actually to get through and to be able to finish my career the way I did, to figure out all those things and, and not give up on it. I think that was a real challenge for me, but it's something that I'm very proud of. The swinging is really interesting because that 10-11 Ashes test, you did corners. swing the ball. Yep. Yeah, it's massively swinging it. And I remember you being asked afterwards and, you know, you were like, I don't really know what happened. It just, yeah. <laughs> it swung for me. And I think we didn't know, as I said, we didn't know that much about you. You weren't one of those, you know, Shane Watson, like, love him, I hate him. He's out there. Like, everyone kind of knew everything about Watto. Yeah. You know, Watto was hosting his own press conferences at Shield Games, right? Like, he was really public. And yeah. you weren't like that. So when you hear something like that, and also, there were things that happened to you that were slightly unfair. You were called a once-in-a-generation cricketer at a really early stage in yeah. your development. You tell a story in the podcast, which I thought was really interesting. When you sort of start getting picked for representative cricket, Queensland, all that sort of stuff, you had the long hair. If I remember, did you not have a labret piercing to remember? Yeah, I did. <laughs> I've looked for that photo for years. I've never been able to find it, but I remember seeing you really early on with that. And... You talk about in the podcast of not quite feeling like you fit in with the rest of the, the cricket guys. And they were all, as you said, cricket guys. And you came from another sport altogether. Yeah. You know, the once in a generation, there was a lot of things that you kind of had to 
overcome to get to that late period. It makes sense that you were at your best right at the end because at the beginning, it must have been a bit of a whirlwind at times of you trying to work out who you were as a person, let alone as a cricketer. Yeah, definitely. And I, I mean, I came from a small country town, I guess, uh, in Townsville, North Queensland. And I grew up quite shy as well. Like I wasn't very talkative. And I think the trusting as well, like not trusting so many people early on um, probably had an impact as well. So uh, it took me a while to sort of settle and um, go through those battles. But um, I look at it now and I think it was a great learning curve for me and uh, I don't have any regrets on what happened throughout my career. I think all of it, good and bad, got me to where I am. So I think that probably helped in a lot of ways. I, I mean, I'm a quite open-minded person, even though sometimes I may uh, react quite sharply or, or may disagree straight away with certain things, um, which I used to do with some of the fast bowling coaches, but they knew me quite well and knew that I needed that time to then cool off and I'd often go up and apologize for probably having a go at them at first and then and then having a good conversation. So now that's just, yeah, like I said, it was just all part of it and it was a great experience of my life. On to the podcast then. I suppose the first thing that you talked about was ADHD. That's kind of not the first thing, the most recent development sort of yep. in your life is, is learning that you have ADHD. Really weirdly, so I wrote about Benny Howe, the England cricketer, and he's talked a lot about his ADHD and how it, I suppose, in some ways helped him become a better cricketer, but completely randomly in that, you know, he has yep. this, a bit like you, he comes out in a similar way of that restlessness and what he find comfortable was having a ball in his hand and inventing yep. new deliveries. And he now says he has 50 deliveries. I'm not sure <laughs> you do have 50, but how many deliveries he has is, is, yep. uh, is up to him at, at, on his sofa. And uh, a friend of mine who just recently got diagnosed with ADHD got in touch with me because of that thing recently. And it was at the same time I was listening to your show. It's obviously a challenge, but I find looking back at your life, that it was probably more of a challenge. You didn't know that you had it. Yeah. R rather than the actual, I'm not saying it's, you know, every day you have to deal with it, yeah. even so, but it's more of a challenge of just not knowing what to do or who to talk to or how to explain things. Benny Howe, he told me that it was like being in an attic where there were like cobwebs everywhere and too much furniture and too many boxes. And that's what his brain was like. Once yeah. he understood that, he was like, great, well, now I can work out how to get through it. Is that kind of how you felt as you've started to learn about it? Uh, you're spot on, 100%. I think. I just didn't know what was going on. I thought I thought it was just normal what was happening, you know, throughout my life and my career and I had no idea. And I look back now and I've been given like the signs of what to look for and it's like, oh, that all makes sense. But I mean, for me, I was more that um, I'm not that hyperactive all day, every day. I get moments of like I'm jittery and I'm like, but it was the hyper focus was the biggest thing for me and that's probably why I did, did so well with cricket, like ultimately, because I knew what I needed to do, like especially at the back end or halfway through my career, I was able to be so focused on what I wanted to do and it helped me uh, big time get through. So, yeah, I, I think spot on with what you're saying there. I'm able to use it to my advantage, I guess, now because I do know, I'm not sort of confusing it with is there something is there something wrong with me? At least I know what is going on and it's not until I really – I mean, I got on the Dex amphetamines to sort of – help with it after I finished and um, I noticed a few things that no, I was able to focus normally on getting things done. So the problem I sort of had without medication was I would start some things and then not finish it. When it came to cricket though, like I did everything, but it was when it was outside of cricket, 
I couldn't complete tasks. I'd sit in meetings where actually cricket meetings where I'd, I'd zone out like within two minutes. I've told a lot of people this, uh, like friends and family, that I'd be in a conversation with my wife and I would have zoned out pretty early on, but I pick up on like keywords and then I can repeat what she said pretty closely. But she didn't know that I was zoning out until I told her. And she goes, it all makes sense now because sometimes I wouldn't do exactly what she asked. So I hope that all makes sense. Um, it's sort of doing my head in right now. But yeah, no, it's definitely good to know what was going on. And I can see that now looking back. The other main theme that came through it is I wouldn't want to say adrenaline junkie. In fact, I'm pretty sure you say to Barra, you're not an adrenaline junkie. But I think there's been a big move in the last couple of years of your life to kind of replace what cricket did for you um yeah emotionally maybe as much as anything so you've got an mma fight coming up shortly and you know you've been on the racetrack a few times as well there's clearly something within you that is driving you those are not things that a man of your age usually starts to get into yeah right yeah. and so yeah. i don't want to say that you've had problems with adjusting to not being a professional athlete yeah. but I, I i kind of more mean you still need that little bit of edge that that competitive stuff gives you yeah, I think so. I'm not the full adrenaline junkie, but I, I, I sort of feel like, and it's funny with the racing thing, I spoke to Jess about this recently as well, and it feels like a control thing for me. So we're talking about going to the show and going on rides. I never liked going on rides because I never had control of them. So going on like the Wizard or anything like that, I never went on them because I felt like it was out of control. And then I said, well, when it comes to the car racing, I feel like I'm in control because I'm steering and I've got the foot on the pedal and the brake. And even though it's like there's that danger to it, I'm not thinking the danger. I'm just thinking I've got the control here. And then I feel like, yeah, safer in that way. So it's quite interesting that. Um, and I guess for the, it's not, well, I do a bit of MMA, but the charity boxing match, I guess in a way I've got the control again. I've got the gloves on. I can move around. It's me controlling that part, I guess. So, yeah, I guess that's where it makes sense for me. Yeah, and uh, obviously you've got some competitiveness in you as anyone who was on Twitter during the Ifan and Yusuf Patan uh, moment from the <laughs> Legends League. I uh, will know more about. Look, mate, it's a huge honor to have you come to the podcast network. It's massive for us. Uh, you and Barra, I've heard, I think, about three or four episodes. I feel like... And I, I think I had read your book. I'm pretty sure I've read your book. And I felt like I know a lot about you as well. But I feel like you're being more open and honest and you just needed a place to regularly talk about. Obviously, it's going to be about a bunch of different things. A lot of it is about yeah. you, you know, becoming a non-professional athlete. There's also stuff about your career that we'll be talking about. And I'm sure that when something annoys you in the cricket news, Barrett won't be able to hold you back from mentioning that as well. <laughs> in fact... Pat Cummins, one-day captain. It doesn't make any sense to me because I don't think he's going to play much one-day cricket, but I suppose there's a World Cup around the corner. Thoughts, Mitch? Well, he's just said it as well. I mean, he said it in the press conference that he'll probably be rested from games and uh, because of the amount of cricket. So it seems like it's already been set up for the next person in line, which has all been Davey Warner. Uh, they've been talking a, bit, a lot about him, but it's a hard one because I don't know if they had a lot of choice, to be honest. Um, there's no one really cementing that spot. Maybe Kerry as a, a wicketkeeper batsman, possibly. Um, I've always liked Head, but just needs that consistency. I think um, he does a great job with his state, but just needs that consistency at the top level. So there are maybe a couple of people around, but, yeah, it's going to be interesting. I mean, I don't know if it's the right thing. You, you, when they make these decisions, I try to not get too emotional about it and I try and think it through a little bit and 
we'll have to wait and see. But he's already come out and said that he's um, not probably going to play all the games. So it's um, a strange one. But I think maybe they just didn't have too many options. I think that's right. Barrett told me recently, and I'd forgotten this, that Travis Head was made test vice captain at one stage. Then he was dropped from the test team, but they never said... If Mitch Marshall as well. Yeah, and I'm not sure they said any of them were lo- no longer vice captains. So I like to think that there are just oh, random right. vice captains around at all times, which kind of tells you there's a bit of a problem with leadership within the main, let's say, eight or nine players, which is why Pat Cummins ends up with yeah. all the jobs. Your show is called The Mitch Johnson Show. Uh, it's going to be coming out on Mondays. First episode will be this Monday. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. I, I think I told you when I was listening into the first recording and I forgot I wasn't listening to a normal podcast and I went into a shop and I was trying to press pause and then I realized that we were actually live recording. So there's a very good sign that you two were uh, talking about some great things so much so that I got lost in the moment. So thanks for coming on the network, mate. And uh, can't wait to hear more great things from you. Oh, no, it's great to be a part of the team. I'm looking forward to it. And um, yeah, like you said, there's uh, plenty of open and honest uh, conversations that go on. It's all about different types of things. There'll be some current stuff. There'll be some stuff about my past, uh, my career. Uh, we'll look at all different types of bowlers, I think, in the near future as well. So um, there's so much going on, which I'm really excited about. And yeah, like I said, great to be a part of the team. No worries. And now we'll just play a couple of minutes of the first episode so that you can get your whistle wetted and then uh, keep coming back once a week. And Mitch and Burra will be talking about the life of Mitchell Johnson. course i saw you play your cricket i covered uh, your cricket as well over the years but the moment when i really decided that i would love to do a podcast with you it was back in 2019 we were in london and uh, you're doing a live show with our good friends adam collins and jeff lemon and i just sat there listening to you and honestly i told myself you know what someday i would love to i've actually not i would love to i will you know, have a podcast. I will do a podcast with this man. And if you think about it, it's a classic modern day romantic story, right? It, it's it's happened. It's taken a while, but it's it's happened. Yeah, I remember doing that, and I just remember it was probably at that point after my career where I really wanted to open up. I think through my career, I was quite open most of the time. I went through my ups and downs with the media, but after sort of, I think it was coming back into the game that twenty thirteen fourteen series definitely help my relationship with the media. It was probably just before that. I sort of made a bit more of an effort to make those relationships with certain journalists and be able to go into those press conferences, being open and honest as much as you could, being in a team environment. You didn't want to obviously give too much away, but you wanted to be as open and honest. So that's how I always tried to be because I felt like that was always the best way to go about it. And I think people can see through a bit of the bullshit, but... <laughs> yeah, when I did that over in England, it was another sort of step up for me because I was outside of the game, starting to realize that, you know, I don't have to talk like a player. I can be more open again, uh, talk a little bit more about things that I liked, uh, talk a bit about my career as well. I think that's one thing we've spoken about off air on phone calls together, being able to talk about my career and my path, um, which is something you don't get to do when you're in your career. And even when you finish, you don't tend to, if you're doing commentary, whether it's TV or uh, radio, you're not talking about your career. You're talking about those guys that are out there in the middle. And so I think, um, well, that was a great opportunity in England to be able to start being really open. And 
I actually did start to think about doing podcasts around that time, like vaguely, like from my memories going back to then. And it sort of built up over time. And like I said, you've sort of reached out to me and and you've been able to be a good friend and you always come up and say good day and made me feel comfortable. So the partnership again, I think there's there's a lot to this and I'm really looking forward to you know doing some good stuff with you. 